standing at this time, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. If you do not have a Bible this morning, as always, it'll be up on the screen behind me. This is our scripture reading for this morning. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless this word. You can be seated at this time. Well, as always, I want to welcome you to White Oak this morning. Uh, I've seen uh, many new faces, and so as always, uh, we are so glad that you're here with us. If this is uh, your first time or one of your first few times, uh, we are so glad that you're here. Um, I want to specifically say uh, that if I haven't met you before, I'm going to be standing at the welcome table after service, and so I would encourage you to come by, just uh, tell me hi and tell me your name. I'll probably forget it, but you'll remind me again later on. And so, but come introduce yourself to me. I would love to meet you, and uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, the title this morning is Relationships, Not Resumes. Relationships, Not Resumes. And I just want to preface by saying on the PowerPoint, I don't know if like resumes is supposed to have the little accent line on the E, but I couldn't find a way to do that on PowerPoint. And so um, it's, not relation, it's not relationships, not resumes. That, that's not what I'm trying to say here, you know. Um, but I actually Googled it, and it's actually, this is acceptable a way to put it as well. So you don't have to put the accent mark, but whatever. But it should be very clear. I'm talking about a resume, like the kind of resume you submit for a job, right? So I want to lay that groundwork. But I think this morning is, is really important. And I think our text is extremely relevant because uh, what I think Paul is going to talk to us about today and to clarify for us today is what I have experienced in my life, um, specifically amongst, amongst people who are um, either not Christians or unchurched people, the people, and I grew up with a lot of people in this community that were not Christians. And uh, I think that our text today really talks about what I think, honestly, is the biggest misunderstanding or misconception about what Christianity is amongst most people, right? And so I think there's this, there's this massive understanding amongst a lot of people that the whole point of Christianity is about being a good, moral person. 
Oftentimes when I talk to people who uh, do not go to church or maybe they're not a Christian, they'll say things like, well, I don't really, maybe I don't align with the morality of the church or I'm not really interested in changing my views on things. I, I already think I'm kind of a good person, so I don't think I need church that much, right? A lot of people think the point of Christianity is just to be a good moral person. At, at the core of what a lot of people think, I promise you, that's what they think. I have conversations with people all the time, and they're like, yeah, church kind of makes you a little bit better and improves you, gives you a little bit of hope in life, and you know, helps you to not do all the bad stuff and to do all the good stuff. That's what people think. And so then you'll hear people say things like, well, all, all religions are the same because they all basically teach the same thing, that we're all trying to be a little bit better people. And anyone who says that, um, I don't know exactly what they think about everything, but at the very least, anyone who thinks that, at the very least, misunderstands, I believe, what the Bible teaches Christianity is. Following Jesus is a specific thing with a specific core. And at its core, I don't think the whole point is that God wants to make us a little bit better of people. Most people I know who maybe are not Christians, and even a lot of people who, are, who would claim to be a Christian, they think that if there is a heaven, and if God is the one that oversees heaven, that they will go there when they die. And their reason for thinking this is because heaven is where the good people go, right? And that God determines who's a good person that gets to spend eternity with him based upon if you did more good things than bad, okay? And now all of us have different ratios. Like some people think you got to have a, you got to do 51% of your actions have to be good, right? You have to tip the scale. You know, it's got to be the majority. Maybe it's a 70-30, you know, like 70% of the things you do have to be qualified as good, 30% is bad. Because at the end of the day, what's really important in your life is the things that you do or the things that you do not do. That to be a Christian is simply to be a little bit better of a person. And yet there's, there's, there's two problems with this thinking this morning. Number one, God is holy and perfect and can tolerate no sin. And so what that means, I believe, is that even if you think you're a good person, and even if I think I'm a good person, when you really begin to understand who God is, you realize, oh man, I'm not that good. Uh, I've used the illustration before that if you were looking at the Houston Rockets, right, uh, the, your, your understanding of if the Houston Rockets are a good or, or not good basketball team, which woohoo, go new, new season, right? I'm, I'm hopeful for it, right? We're one on one, but I'm okay with that, right? But if, like, your whole understanding as to if the Rockets are a good basketball team, it all depends on who you compare them to, right? If you compare the Houston Rockets to the Clifton Middle School, which I was a Clifton Cougar, go Cougs, right? Clifton Middle School, seventh grade girls basketball team, right? If you compare the Rockets to them, and even the boys' basketball team, right? Even the boys' basketball team, right? You would say they are amazing. They're wonderful. They're awesome. They're like the best team ever. And yet if you were like to compare them to the Golden State Warriors, right? Or if you were to compare even the Los Angeles Lakers, right? They're not a very good team this year, right? They're not as good as those teams. And so the problem with this thinking is we often don't realize that, that God is holy and perfect and, and has, has, has no issues in himself. He is the essence of everything that is good. And so if we think that God simply chooses who's good and who's bad based upon how good of a moral person you are, then in reality what that means is that he loves us based upon what we do. And what that means is that all of us in this room, that we are ranked in terms of how much God loves us based upon what we have done or have not done. Raise your hand if you remember MySpace. Raise your hand if you remember MySpace. Okay, MySpace, yeah. So for those of you who don't remember MySpace, 
Raise your hand if you know what Facebook is. Facebook, a lot more hands, like almost every hand. Okay. So this is probably an oversimplification, but MySpace was the original Facebook, right? Uh, MySpace was Facebook before Facebook was like this like dominant social media force, right? And MySpace was really cool because you could have a profile page and you could put a, remember the backgrounds on MySpace, you know? And you could put like a song on your profile. When someone went to your page, they could like hear your song. And it was really cool. I always had a rock song. That's what I liked, you know. And, you know, I kind of thought I was cool. And, you know, you create this page and you'd have friends and stuff. But MySpace had this very interesting feature that other social media sites didn't have, including Facebook. And I think it was part of its uh, demise. MySpace had this thing called Top 8. Remember Top 8? Raise your hand if you remember like my Top 8, okay? So here was the thing about MySpace. Like, you know how on Facebook you have a bunch of friends and stuff, right, you're connected with? MySpace, you had a bunch of friends. So say you had two or 300 friends, but they had this feature on your home page where you could literally pick out of all of your friends online your top eight friends and post them on the front of your page, right? And it was even more specific to where, like, all of your friends were literally ranked based upon how good of a friend they were, right? And so there was, like, your first best friend, your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, right? And so you would literally update weekly or daily, depending on how crazy you were, your best friends. And you would say, this person is my number one friend, this person's my number two friend and three friend. And what it ended up doing, I found out, is it created a bunch of division amongst people because you would be offended if you were like, had them as your eighth best friend and you were their fourth best friend, right? That was embarrassing, right? Or if, if you had them listed as one of your top eight friends and you weren't in their top eight friends. And so what it created was this environment, because I was in middle school at this time. It created this environment of like you would try to be nice to people just so they would put you in their top friends, right? And if they, they, they bumped you down on the list, if you lost your ranking a little bit, then you try to be a little bit nicer and cooler and hit them up and invite them over because you're trying to like regain your standing, and then you would be frustrated if like, if, like, someone in their top eight really didn't like them behind their back and gossiped about them, and you always had their back, but they didn't know that, and so you weren't even on their top friends, and they were number three, and you're like, this is the worst thing ever. It created division. And like I said, I'm not sure of this, but I think it might have been the demise of MySpace. It created a, a divisive culture. And if you think that God determines who he's in relationship with, and who he loves based upon what you do or do not do, then inevitably what that means is that God loves some of us more than others, God accepts some of us more than others, and that literally in this room, if that were the case, we would be ranked from about 1 to 150, right? And so that means somebody in this room would be the best. I don't know who that would be, right? One of you would be the holiest person and the most loved and accepted by God because God accepts us based upon our works. And one of you would be the last, right? You're like, my spouse, you know, like they're last place, you know. We had a rough week. And yet most people in our culture of tolerance and acceptance, I don't, I don't get it. They, we say we want a loving God, and yet we look to God and expect him to love us based upon what we do or don't do. And the amazing thing about it is the same thing happened back in Paul's day. Look at our text this morning. Let's look at verse 2 together. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. I'm going to read this. It might sound kind of confusing, but I'm going to explain it. He says, look out for the dogs, right? By dogs, he means like people he doesn't like, right? He's not talking about look out for rescue dogs. That's not what he's saying, right? Look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So what Paul is saying in this moment is he's writing to a church that he had planted, that he had planted, founded on the gospel of Jesus, that all of us, and this church included, that we are loved by God through the work of Christ. That God accepts all people who place their faith in Jesus, who, who believe they have right standing with God because of what Christ has done and because they have trusted in that work. So none of us are better than the other, right? And none of us are, worth, are, are, are worse. It just means at the core of it, do we want God or not? Do we want to reconcile the brokenness that our sin has created? And so Paul would plant these churches with the gospel at the focus, as a focus. And then these people would wander into these church, and some of them were called Judaizers. And what they were were people of the old Jewish religion, of the old Jewish customs, and they would come into the churches and they would begin saying, look, simply having faith in Christ and trying to grow in his image is not enough. You have to keep all these laws, all these customs, all these rituals of, of what God did in the past in the Old Testament. You have to keep all these things, right? I mean, there was rituals about you couldn't, you couldn't plow a field with two different kinds of animal. You had to wear certain kinds of clothes. I mean, there were some really crazy things that they were asking them to keep. And so the problem was, it was all these non-Jewish people who were Gentiles who had no familiarity at all whatsoever with all these old customs, right? And they'd become new believers in Christ. And these people would come in and say, no, you have to keep all these things, all these traditions, all these rituals. And Paul literally freaks out at them, like literally freaks out, okay? He calls them dogs. Because back in the day, like I, I love dogs. I have a rescue dog. I always say that, like I love, love my bow, my bubbo. Um, but... But back then, dogs were not as domesticated as they are now. And so in Paul's day, Paul's would literally roam urban areas, and they were wild, and they weren't trained, and they would just cause havoc everywhere. They'd be eating stuff. They'd be attacking people. They were just a huge nuisance, always causing trouble. And so Paul is saying these people come into churches, and they cause problems, and they cause issues. He says there are evildoers, people who say they want us to keep customs, but they're really just causing problems. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about circumcision, which I'm not going to go deep into what that is. But for those of you who know what that is, right? In the Old Testament, it was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It was an outward sign of what God was doing in them. And they were saying people had to get circumcised and all these, all these kinds of things. And what Paul begins to say is like, look, that's not how this works. You see, the problem is in life, we often focus on our resume, we focus on our resume in the Christian life. We think that God loves us because we're a good person, because we've done a bunch of good things. We think that God accepts us for those reasons, and we remove love from the picture. I remember when I was in college, I created my first resume. Uh, I'd gone to college like most people and uh, racked up debt like most people, right? And so at the end of college, like, you, you, know, you kind of get a job to pay off all the debt you accrued, right? That's the whole, that's the whole way it goes, right? And so one of my last college classes of my senior year, I was in this class, and our big assignment was you need to create a resume, right? Because you're about to graduate and you've got to go get a job. And so our teacher paired us up with a different person in the class, and I was really excited because the person she paired me up with to help make my resume was a guy who already had a job. He had a great resume. He was way more accomplished than I was, right? And I was like, this guy's going to help me get a job, right? He's, he's going he's to do it right, okay? And so the assignment was create your resume, email it to your partner, and they give you feedback back on how to make your resume better. 
And so I, I made my resume, which, you know, I said everything that, I, all the good stuff that I'd ever done and all the little work, you know, because you have no work experience in college, right? You need five years of experience to get a job that requires five years of experience, but you don't have five years of experience, you know? So anyway, I create this resume, and I send it to him, and he emailed me back, and he's like, hey, it's a, it's a pretty good resume, but you've got this one glaring problem on your resume. I said, well, what is it? He said, um, at the bottom of your resume, this is a true story, you put this really weird thing on the bottom of your resume. I was like, well, what was it? He's like, you, you put my areas of weakness, and you listed three things. Let me explain you what I was thinking, right? As I was creating my first ever, like, resume to, to get a job, as I was, like, finishing my resume, I was like, there's no way someone's going to believe this. This is so inaccurate. Like, I'm saying all these good things I've done, right? There's no way that they're going to think I'm being, they're going to think I'm lying. Cause I, I, you're supposed to, I guess, be honest somewhat and list a few of the things you can grow in, right? And he's like, man, he's like, he, he was like, I get the effort, you know? He's like, but, but take the areas of improvement off of, off of your resume. And I saw him in class the next day and I said, hey, so what's the whole point of, like, a resume? Do we just kind of, like, lie about kind of who we are and inflate who we are to look better and stuff? And he's like, man, he goes, he goes it's not lying. He's like, you're just trying to get the job, you know? He's like, he's like you just kind of get the job. And it was funny because if we're honest, on resumes, the, the whole point of a resume is you write everything down that you've ever done. And you make it about 30% better and more accomplishing than it really was in reality, right? And you don't talk about the time that you wasted all the company time on Facebook. And you don't talk about the time you missed the deadline, right, for the assignment. You don't talk about any of the bad things you have done. You just talk about all the successes that you've had. And we give somebody this resume. And if we're quite honest, it's not really who we are deep down, And I think in our world today, in our lives, the same misconception happens in our walk with the Lord because we do the same thing with good works and holiness. To the world, we portray all of our good deeds, all the good things we've done. On Facebook, you don't post your failures. You don't post all the bad stuff you've done, right? You keep those things secret. And you portray this life amongst the conversations you have, amongst the things that you buy, amongst the things that you say. We craft this image of who we are out in the world. We create this spiritual resume of who we are. And yet here's the problem, and here's why it's not about resumes. Because you can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool God. God knows everything we've ever done at every moment in our life. And I'm like many of you, I, 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 I you know, I struggle. I, I, I put off the image, you know, I, I act a certain way, you know. In a lot of ways, when I was growing up, I, I followed all the rules. I, I did a lot of the right things, you know. I didn't get on certain things. I mean, I, whatever. But, but I know deep down that there's a lot of things in my life that you would never know about that I struggle with. There are sins and failures in my life, and God knows these things. The same way that your parents and your spouse, they know your real struggles because they know who you are deep down. Imagine that, but infinitely more. God knows us. He knows our failures. He knows our brokenness. I understand that all of us, we are way more jealous of other people than we put off. We struggle with anger way more than we let on. We're way more anxious. We we have way more issues than we post on Facebook, than we portray in the world. And God knows all these things, and yet here is the wonder God still loves you so deeply. God loves you. God created you. God knows everything about you. 
God knows every weakness, every failure, every problem, every sin. And the light of all of these things, he still sent his son to die on the cross. Because ultimately, it's not about your resume. It's about a relationship that God wants to have with all of us through Christ. Let's look at verse 7. This is where Paul begins to tell us. So if it's not about being good, if it's not about good works, then what is it about? What's the core of what we believe? Verse 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me give you the core of what we believe. Let me give you the core of what makes Christianity so wonderful. And it is ultimately the gospel. And the gospel in this moment for our conversation today is the gospel or the good news is that we can receive the perfect resume of Christ through a faith relationship with God. In the end, the question isn't what kind of a person are you? In the end, the question is for all of us, do you want to know God? Do you want to be in a relationship with God? See, so often we lose people when we have conversations about Jesus because we, we kind of give off this aura of like, so do you want to be a better person? Are you interested in kind of conforming your morality to this other standard that you're not familiar with? When in reality, the, the core of the question that we should be asking people, the first question is, do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? Because then Christ is the way that we do know God. The gospel is the way that we build our relationship with God. See, here's the reality. We do not deserve it, but that no longer matters in the gospel because we are loved. You are loved by God. And it's amazing because here's the thing. We've already talked about how God knows you, and now God wants, wants you to know who he is. God invites us into a relationship. God invites us to know what he's like. God invites us to let the sins be washed away from our body and to live a holy existence learning about him and growing with him and spending eternity with him. John Piper asks a really, I think, challenging question. I was listening to this podcast last week, and he said, he's he's a well-known pastor, and he said, if you could go to heaven... And it had everything you ever wanted. You had the perfect mansion, and it was the perfect atmosphere. It was the most beautiful place with the most beautiful weather 24-7. You had all the maybe perfect food. It was, it was everything you could ever want. If you could go to heaven and have all of those things, and yet Jesus was not there, would you still want to go? Hmm. And if you're like me, that's kind of convicting But it shows how so often what we make it about is the stuff and not the God that we have the opportunity to know. You see, our sin broke our relationship with God. 
We were created by God in the beginning to have a perfect existence with him, loving him, glorifying him, being happy in his holiness, living in his presence. And we get so distracted in life and we get so busy with all of these different things, all these things that really don't matter in the end, and piling up these resumes of good works. And yet the question is, do you know who God is? Jonathan Edwards, who's considered to be probably like the most famous theologian America has ever produced, he said the the part of Jesus most people miss is his beauty. He says the more you grow to know who God is and who Christ is, he becomes more beautiful. And you find that the desires of the world are crushed, not through just trying to not desire those things anymore, but by replacing that with a far better desire in your life. You see, Christ is far better than sin. He's far better than brokenness. He's far better than selfishness. To know Christ is the essence of our existence. God wants you to know who he is and to have a relationship with him. In Christ, we gain the resume of Christ. We gain the perfection through believing in him. We gain salvation for eternity. We gain happiness. We gain a heavenly father who loves us. And in Christ, we don't just let go of our sin, but we also let go of what we thought originally was our righteousness. You know, all of us, you know, we think we're awesome people, you know. And yet in reality, what we gain in Christ is far superior. The gospel is what makes Christianity different. The good news of Jesus is that simply through trusting in him and growing with him, we become right with God is our spiritual oxygen. It is our hope every single day when we wake up, even discipleship and trying to imitate the teachings of Jesus mean absolutely nothing if you don't know who God is. And so why do I ask you this morning, so maybe, yeah, you tried to follow God, but do you love him? Do you desire him? Do you want to know him? Are you thirsty for knowledge of what he has done and how beautiful he is and how he is so far above all the cares of the world that without this knowledge we can get sucked down into living our whole life just trying to fix car issues or working jobs or being stressed out at home because it's not clean enough and we we make the center of our life all these things and even good things that we're trying to do and we're doing all these things and we're so busy right and we pride ourselves on I'm so busy I do so much work you know I'm I'm not a lazy person I'm so busy and the whole time we're missing the best part of life which is to know God This is why we use a phrase called a gospel wonder so often. Because in my experience of being a pastor, most people know what to do in the Christian life. The problem is we just struggle to do it. And what I believe is that the more we know Christ, the more we know about God, the more we realize how much he loves us, obedience becomes the most natural thing because his spirit is leading us every day. And we're not worried about the future. We're just loving in the present the way that Christ loved us. God is the initiator of love. And we are called to enjoy and savor this and to live a holy lives in obedience to how much he loved us on the cross and in the resurrection. 
So how do we do this? I want to give you three things really quick, right? So we want to do this. We want to know Christ. We want to enjoy him more, right? We want, to, we want to know him. We want to count everything as lost, right? We don't just want to say that Christ is better than everything else, right? We want Christ to actually be better than everything else, right? Isn't that what we want? We, we want him to be better. First thing is this, and this is going to sound completely backwards to the way our world sees things, but it's, it's so true. Number one, regularly practice confession. This sounds crazy, I know. But confessing sins is like one of the most amazing things in the world. Raise your hand if you ever confessed a sin and you immediately felt so much better and like God done a work in your heart. Raise your hand. I've like, oh my goodness. And raise your hand if before you confessed it, you thought my life's going to get a whole bunch worse if I confess this. But you did it anyway, right? Yeah, is that how it is? The psalmist says this in Psalm 32, verses uh, 3 through 5. He says, this is David. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise the Lord. Confessing sin is walking in the light. It's saying, yeah, I need the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm done with the front, right? I'm done with acting like I'm perfect. I'm done like I, like acting like I have it all together, like I know everything. I'm, I'm, I'm not the person I portray on Instagram, as they say. You know, it's like I'm, I'm not that cool. My life isn't that fun and amazing. I got issues. I got problems. You see, what confession does is it gives us an accurate sense of who we really are. You will desire God more when you give up the illusion that you don't have sin in your life. You will love him. You will cherish him. You will savor this. The more we create our hunger, the more we enjoy what quenches our hunger. Confession does this. You can confess your sins to God, but I think it's very powerful to actually confess your sins to another human being. It's scary. It's dangerous but it's an invitation to walk in the light. Lay your burdens down, church. Lay your failures down. Experience the peace of God in your hearts. The gospel means it's okay to confess your sins. You don't have to hide anything because when you get to heaven, God's not going to be like, man, I I was going along, but then I found out you did a bunch of bad stuff. It's not going to be like that. When you confess, you find healing. And when we hold back, like, Paul, like uh, David says, our bones waste away and we experience pain. Confess your sins to somebody. Begin to grow in Christ. Number two, focus more on building your relationship with God than on building your resume of good works. I take this from uh, Philippians 3, verses, uh, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Uh, that w- the verb used in the word knowing right there, uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, there, there, there's two different words John MacArthur says uh, that could have been used right there. And the, the Greek word that was used that, that, that is knowing is the way more relational and personal form of that word. And so what Paul is saying here is like a personal relational knowing of who God is. And here's the problem, like I referenced earlier. We're trying to be obedient, and we have no relationship with God. We don't know him. 
We forget that it's not about your resume, it's about your relationship. Let me give you just a few of the many images in the Bible of a biblical relationship. The greatest commandment Jesus said was to what? Was to love God. Was to love, like you like love God. Jesus' invitation to his followers was follow me. They literally walked with him. It says Christ is the friend of sinners. Several times in the Old Testament, God says to Israel, I will be their God and they will be my people. God wants us to be his people in relationship with him, knowing him. Christ taught us to think of God, this is the craziest one to me, as a father. Christ taught us to think of God, not, he didn't say pray as a majestic deity. He could have said that, right? He didn't say as the one who is so far above us. He didn't say that, right? He said pray to him as a father. A father is the most probably relational way Christ could have ever explained God to us. And Christ refers to us as the church, as sons and daughters adopted by a loving Father. You see, in a relationship with God, what you find is God is so beautiful and he's so loving and he's so forgiving and what the world says about him isn't true because you've experienced differently. The only people who think that are people who have never experienced him in those quiet moments of prayer. The only people who don't know are the people who have not tasted Do not listen to the people who know nothing about God. Listen to someone who has experienced God if you want to grow. It's about your relationship. It's about knowing him and about good works that flow out of a wonder of what he has done for you. And we build this relationship like any relationship through time, through obedience, and through listening to him. And the third thing is this. How do we do this? Focus to prioritize your relationship with Christ above everything else. Um, I had this uh, moment a couple weeks ago, and uh, I decided, I, I was like on this like big, like I want to grow and get better kick and all this kind of stuff. So I came up with this, you can ask my wife, this is true, I don't make this stuff up, right? I, I talk about all my stupid ideas, you know. And uh, I had this idea, and my idea was I'm going to make a list of all the things I want to grow in, and I'm going to read two books on every one of those topics, right? So I'm going to compile a list, and I'm going to research on Amazon a couple books on each topic. And by the end of the year, I want to have read two books on each thing that I want to grow in, right? And I was assuming that maybe on my list there would be three or four things that I felt like I, I'm called that I have to do. I have to grow in and be good. I, I'm, I thought maybe it's going to be three or four things, so I'm going to read about six or eight books. Made a list. It was 19 things, okay? It was 19 things, Okay? And so I'm like making this list, like, well, I want to be a good uh, Christ follower. I want a good devotional life. And so I got to read a couple books about that. And I want to be a good husband. I mean, because, you know, what's more important than that? Like, my wife needs me to love her. And I want to be a good dad because I love my daughter. I want to be a good friend and good church member, good American citizen. I want to be up to date on politics. And I want to be a healthy person, right? Because I want to take care of my body. I want to be smart and sharp. I want to be informed, academic. I want to be organized and efficient. I want to be benevolent and loving and caring for those in need. I want to have a house that's in order and efficient so I'm not stressed out all the time. I, I, want, to, I want to grow in theology. I want to grow in this and that and this and that. I made this list and it was 19 things long. And I said, there is no way I'm reading 38 books. I, I, I cannot, can't do that, right? And so I began to ask my question, myself the question that I think everyone in life asks. I got to get to the core, 
I got to get to the center. I, I spend time getting better at random stuff, right? What's the core? What's the essence? What, what's the one thing? What is the thing that changes all things? And I came to the point, I was like, it's, it's Jesus. Just know Christ. Know him. Know what he's done for you. Know what his call on his life is, or on your life is for you. To know Christ is the thing that changes all things. Here's the reality. You walk in here feeling tired and burdened and can't do it all and you need hope and you need this and you, you got all these issues. Here's the reality. Christ is the thing that changes all things. Christ helps marriages. Christ helps you parent. Christ helps you be a good employee. Christ helps you love people. Christ helps you care for people. Christ does all these things. If you spend your whole life trying to get all these different areas of your life in order, you will, you will not only fail, but you'll be tired and you won't accomplish your goal. But if you know Christ, Paul says, you have everything. I count everything as rubbish that I may know him because I'm not justified by my resume. I am justified because I have a loving, personal relationship with the God who loves me. So here's the charge. Don't let the busyness in your life and all the random stuff you're doing get in the way of the thing that changes all things. Prioritize your relationship with Christ above everything else. Maybe this is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As we close, I, uh, I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine this week, and uh, he asked me like a really uh, kind of interesting question that kind of got me thinking. You know, I love people that ask good questions, you know, kind of get you into like the right frame of mind. And he was like, I wonder what it would be like if you could like email God and like he would like literally respond via email, right? Because we, like, if you're like me, I email 24-7. I email a lot of you. That's how I do a lot of my work. My email basically is my to-do list of all the things I have to do, all the things I have to process. And he said, I wonder what it would be like if we could email God. And I wonder what it would be like if I could email him. And I wonder what I would ask him. And I wonder what my life would say if my life were to be emailed to God. Like based upon the way that I live my life and the things that I say and the things that I often do, I wonder what it would say. And if that were the case, here's what I think oftentimes we would email God. We would email him after a long week, and we would attach a document to that email. And on that document, for many of us, it would have our resume. And on that resume, it would be like, here's all the things I did, God. Here's all the successes. Here's all the, here's all the people that I loved, and here's all my good deeds and all this. And, and God, I, I made these mistakes over here. You know, I, um, I, I failed, and I I, I got way too angry this week, and I failed as a parent and a spouse, and I didn't do this, and I, I cheated at work, and I did this, and I didn't do that. But God, here's, here's what I did over here. I did a bunch of good stuff, and we're, we're sending him our resume. And, and the question our life seems to always ask God is that, is that it's as if we're saying, God, are you impressed with me? What do you think, God? Have I been good enough this week? Have I earned heaven yet by doing enough good things? That's what so many belief systems teach. That we're asking, am I, am I good enough? Have I done enough? 
Do you like all my hard work? Are you impressed? Do you think I'm better than all those other lesser, lazy, or less holy people? Am I better than other people? Am I good enough for you? Have you accepted me this week? And we keep sending the email and sending the email and sending the email. And what I think God responds with, I think the life of Jesus in sending his son into the world is as we email him our resume and we, we shoot it his way and we ask him, what do you think? He responds back by saying, do you want to know who I am? How have you been this week? Would you like to hang out tomorrow? I've got some stuff I'd love to tell you. I think you'll like it. God, am I, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And God's like, do you want to get to know me and my glory? God says he wants to know us. Paul says, I just want to know Christ. And everything else falls in place. I just have to know him and his surpassing worth. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loves this world. God loves you. And this week, what God wants from you, above everything else, the core of what we're doing here, is he wants you to know him, and to behold his glory and his love for you in the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all the people that are tired this morning. Maybe for those who feel condemned and like they're not good enough. May they find rest in the name of Jesus Christ. God, may we not rely in our own righteousness to be at peace with you. May we be at peace because of the cross and the resurrection. May we proclaim it is finished, that we are made new, that we are eternally secure, and that we have every confidence that on the day of judgment when we stand before you, that though we will give an account for everything that we've done, May we rejoice in the fact that your scripture teaches it's not our works, but the works of Christ. God, no matter how many times we sin and fail, if we call upon your name, if we know Christ, we have found the one thing that changes everything else in the present and in eternity. We thank you for this truth. We find rest in this truth this morning. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.